we come into the third foundation and how disciples does do they in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind here they know a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust they know an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger they know a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. They know a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. They know a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow. They know a surpassable mind to be surpassable, an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. We'll talk about um, more of these distinctions um, later on uh, to get a little bit uh, technical. Um, but again, the language really here is knowing when there's anger or when there's not anger, for example, or lust or delusion. When we get into um, the fourth foundation tomorrow, you can hear uh, the language shifts here. So for example, if sensual desire is present in them, they know sensual desire is present in me. If sensual desire is not present in them, they know sensual desire is not present in me. That's the same. But then it goes on. Okay, stay with this language because it gets a little bit uh, kind of cumbersome. And they know how the unarisen sensual desire can arise. So you actually have to see where did it come from? There's knowing it's here, knowing it's not here, but how did it arise? If you're watching the stream of your mind, you can see, whoa, it, it arose. I was just minding my own business and then something kicked it off. Well, what kicked it off? What were the circumstances? How did unarisen sensual desire come to be? how arisen sensual desire can be removed. So you know it, but then you begin to experiment. How can I actually come out of this craving mind? I can, one tactic is just wait for it. Anicca will take care of it. Okay, that's one strategy. Another is, can I reflect upon the fact that this craving probably won't deliver the happiness it wants? Oh, yeah, if I do that, it kind of weakens the grip of the craving. I can explore the Vedana quality. So there are all these tactics of how to come out of a craving mind. That's how we know how the arisen sensual desire can be removed. <clears throat> it still goes on. And how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. So... How in the future, rather than just cleaning up every time it comes, is there a way I can live, go through the stream of experience, and see if I can prevent new cravings from arriving, arising? How to do that? Reflecting on it, ref, uh, heightening your awareness around it, um, being more mindful in the present, less spaced out, less hijacked by these experiences. There's a whole learning how to uh, see where, how it arose, how you can uh, get rid of it, how you can prevent it in the future. So a lot more language of intervention, skillful intervention. 
That's the language of the fourth foundation of tomorrow. The language of the third foundation of today is just know if there's anger or know if there's not anger. So for example, right now, if you'd be so bold, how many of you are completely enraged? (laughs) Am I the only one? Wow, completely enraged. What is it like? Hmm. One quality of the rage that's present is like a motor. Like a motor running. Motor running. Great. You know it and you're being intimate with it. What is like what is it like to be right now completely enraged? Oh uh, well, it's unpleasant and pleasant. And I'm aware of pushing away from it. Hmm. Because it's like right under the I'm feeling it, but it's like, right? You're, hmm. so and so you're it's... feeling it only because... Right, you're trying... Yeah, the number of reasons to kind of keep some perspective, and that's how to bring in perspective so you can actually be more familiar with it, but not have it be a forest fire that takes over. Exactly. And so how to, how to know it. The hands are going up my head. Well, now you mentioned it. <laughs> Actually, got a lot of molten rage. Those were being honest. <laughs> well, I never thought of myself as being completely enraged, but now that you're, you know, I mean, I have this ugly stomach a lot of the time. Yeah. And it's coming from somewhere. So I don't think I'm intimate with my rage, but I'm certainly getting to recognize this bodily right. sense. Right. And so that, that, that becomes a whole intimacy with it and deepening intimacy and then there's the skillful deepening of the intimacy so it's not just like okay throw yourself in the pit of fiery rage and it's like how do I actually come to know that I'm angry and it's not about intervention it's about skillful deepening of understanding what is the nature of rage what's the nature of anger for the rest of us What is it like not to be? We've all had it, even if you go way back to when you were three and someone took your toys. But probably more recently, something might have like kicked up this like, ah, oh, I can't believe it's like this. What is it like here and now to not be in that state? What's it like not to have rage? What are the qualities when rage is not present? When rage And you're you noticing as a, that that's a quality of the stream of your mind right now, the mind, the heart without rage, there's clarity for you. Yeah. And so we can know what it's like. And then there's also like putting the coffee straw right in the heart. Like, oh, what? if I sip on my heart right now and there's no rage, oh, that's what it's like. I don't have to like suck in all that hot, frustrated energy. It's relief. So that's like tasting a heart and a mind without rage. What else do you taste when rage is not present? Um, There's a lack of tension. Lack of tension. And calmness. Beautiful. So this is the inquiry. What is it like when rage is present? 
What is it like when it's kind of present? What is it like when it's mostly absent? And what is it like, like, yeah, I would call this a zero. Zero. Okay, now we're at five. Okay, now we're 12. Wow, we're at 60. Oh, wow, I'm really, that came on fast. Okay, knowing it, it subsides. Oh, it's subsiding. What's that like? Oh, and so now we're just knowing rage, no rage, and the whole play of anger. All the different types of anger. Yeah. <laughs> in, in my experience of rage, actually, um, or so, to be non-rageful is in some ways a lesser clarity sometimes because the rage can like really focus in this instrument of precision, kind of like you were talking about with the aversive. Yeah. Um, I can like see exactly what's wrong. And so there's sort of like a more fluid spaciousness when there's no rage present. Hmm. Fluid. Just, just fluidity, but not like, but actually maybe not as much clarity as when rage happens. And that, that starts to get like super interesting. And, and also when we start to overlap the real genius of Western psychotherapy and understanding of psychology with Eastern practices, because over in Burma, they were clear, like, it's never good. It's always distorting. <clears throat> but my experience is that I sometimes wake up out of a fog and some of the, um, I was just talking to a friend and I said, um, anger can be a fuel, but not a strategy. So if I finally, like, it comes up, I'm like, wow, I am really burning some high octane consciousness here because it's coming out of a fog and like there's, I could move a mountain. Like I am really engaged. Just having a, again, this argument with my sister and my family about boundaries and what's appropriate. And she keeps wanting me to be a Buddhist about things, which means kind of like getting her, letting her get away with whatever she wants to do and just keep absorbing it. It's like, yeah, no. No, and I won't. And actually, you're going to see how uncomfortable it is to carry on. Like, it's not okay. And I'm okay but it's also not okay. So I can, I'm, I'm not going to just be a doormat around this. And so we are clashing. And some of that actually is us having the heat to have a really important conversation. But can I actually keep the clarity? Like, oh, I have to be careful because this could easily spill over into meanness and unconsciousness. Or is it actually a lot of vitality? So Western psychotherapy would say it's vitality. There's a beauty to it. Can you see it? Can you actually safely be in it and maybe it's actually an empowering um, process for you to be more in touch with your anger and then what is it coming from at some point you might be able to say is there a more skillful wise relationship to anger and rage but it's an interesting uh, cultural meeting there's also cultural differences some cultures you know are they just don't like any of it and so the whole cultural agreement is like, we just tamp this stuff down. Other cultures have different agreements. You express it so it doesn't become toxic. And then norms get created around that and you grow up within those norms. It's like, yeah, actually my family was very expressive and I could see the shadow side of it, but I also see the healthy side of it. And other families like, nope, it was, and that was either repressive or actually that, 
I have a great sense of love and trust with my family because they don't lash out. And that's part of why I feel safe around them. So there could be wise decisions around any of this, but they're also very different um, microclimates that we all grew up in. And then dominating strategies also. That gets into the conversation we'll have later about socialized norms around all these different emotions. So that begins to be the question. What is it like to have it? What's it like not to have it? What's it like when it's at a two versus a 10? What's it like when you start having 10 scale rage? What's it like to be in a mind that's really obsessed about something? How many people are having a 10 of obsession, like pleasurable obsession of something not here? (laughs) Yeah, great. Some of that even could be wholesome. Yeah, some of it, it's not necessarily that it automatically, but what's it like when you can't be here because the mind is so locked on there? And it's actually creating like a gap or a strain to be here. What's it like? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, just not to get pulled into... Yeah. One time, uh, just before a three-month retreat, I was visiting with my family before I was going to disappear for three months. And um, a friend of the family invited a friend, and um, she and I got... We, like had this like falling in love, like, oh my God, like, this is amazing. I'm meeting somebody and I'm about three months of silence. Like, <laughs> no, oh my God. And I just was tortured for the first month. I was like, oh my God, please mind, please wait, wait two months. You can do it. Like, no, it's now. It has to be now. If it isn't now, like, oh, what if she finds somebody else? And he's oh, and I was like, like, oh my God. God, the exhaustion of the wanting. I'm like, please, please. I remember doing walking meditation again, putting my head up against the wall, which I do a lot. It's like, for the love of God, for both of our sakes, please be here now. Stop wanting. But she's the one. Like, oh, God, please stop wanting what you can't have now. But, 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 like, (sighs) (laughs) so that's knowing a mind, and I wasn't knowing it, like, oh, this is great, knowing the mind, it's like, oh my God, it's like, I'm so uh, compelled, so that's one, what's it like for you? Can't manage. I'm trapped out and it's a bit unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
nature of the mind. Yeah. Yeah, so you've grown a peaceful relationship to the fact that the mind has the wanting capacity. Yeah. What's it like to be in a mind that's not obsessed? We all have had it, but if you're not having it now, what's it like here and now to not be locked in obsession? Well, I think I'm not lost in obsession, but I know I want to have certain feelings because I want to be more alive. Hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure whether that's my mind telling my body certain things or it's just a wholesome yearning for my body. And so I'm not quite sure, but it feels like my mind, my, it feels like the truth is my mind isn't quite latching onto anything. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, and again... And there's a calmness with that. Yeah, so that to have an aspiration that's not tormenting you, yeah. not creating strain, not, cre- not being fuel for self-judgment, but an aspiration, even like a, you know, it can be wind in your sails. Like, that's why I'm here, is I have this aspiration. But I can relax into this moment, knowing that's how I'm going to realize the aspiration is meeting the moments, but I have a clear aspiration. So that's knowing a heart with an aspiration, as distinct from a heart that is uh, locked into a yearning that's actually... Uh, sweet and painful and then sometimes quite exhausting to be discontent, to be locked, to have the mind unwilling to let go of the bone that it's latched onto. Other people want to like to be in the heart and mind not dominated by obsession and craving. really, that's a very beautiful, really kind of poignant, I like the wanting, or the wanting sometimes puts energy in my being, and sometimes without the wanting, I don't go into contentment, I go into a sort of flatness that I know there's a little more juice in my system when it, when it wants things, and I kind of want to go back into the more active seeking and exploring of life and I'm because it's yeah there there could be something else happening other other aspects of the heart mind body are present as a you know contrasting wanting from contentment there's wanting versus a type of um, feeling unengaged and it's possible that the wanting again western um psychology overlapping with uh, Eastern philosophy here, that the, the wanting could be seen as something beautiful, something to wake up, to allow yourself to want, to feel deservant of your own dreams, that 
could be seen as a waking up part of your heart and mind that actually likes being alive. That could be an, a new taste. That um, that's why it's not just it's not a two dimensional. This is right. That's wrong. As we get intimate with it, then you actually get to what the interventions are. It's like, is this an aspiration or is this a craving? Oh, it's part of both. How to relax the craving of it and keep the aspiration. Hmm, okay. Aspirations are okay with being here and there. Okay, that's good. The craving, ah, I see how that's working. So then you actually, by knowing it, the interventions get, um, they're not as blunt. They can, you can get in there and clean up in fact, I want the warmth of wanting. Actually, I know I'm actually in a healthier place when I want versus feeling like I don't want anything, but it's a kind of a depressive state maybe or a shutdown state. Other folks, what's it like not to be on the obsessive side of the scale here and now? Put the straw right in your own heart. and What's it like? Yeah, it's the same with uh, with rage that I have found as I've woken up. Um, anger for me has turned into like a conviction for justice. Mm-hmm. And I can be lost in that, thinking I'm right, someone else is wrong. But as I wake up further, I have the fuel and the conviction to seek something that's more just. I'm willing to be in more conflict. And like it's not dampening it down. I actually need to kind of wake up within it. The same with the wanting mind. Sometimes there is a hunger, and it first shows up as a coarse yearning, but then you can find some part of my soul that wants to know something about life, and the wanting shouldn't be extinguished. That's blunt. What is the actual skillful um, renegotiation with the wanting? That's again. I, in some ways, because we have the richness of Western psychotherapy. Um, and the Burmese are, they don't have that yet. They have Dharma sophistication, but it's come with a little bit of a blunt suppression model and suppressing your way into peace is a kind of a default setting. Uh, it may not be the wisest way to get to peace. Um, it can be a little bit blunt. I just have a request if people can speak up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, as we all yeah. share. Yeah. And then the deluded mind. And the deluded mind is, can be, it can come in many ways to know if you have a deluded mind or not. <clears throat> One is just if your mind is feeling wise and has perspective, or it doesn't have wise perspective. So. You know, that's one type of delusion. How good is my perspective? Or am I lost? So there's a little bit of delusion in obsession. There's a little bit of delusion in, in rage. Um, there can be. Deluded can also be dull. So the dull mind that just has no perspective because it's just going through a sleepy phase or kind of a scattered phase or 
murky mind. That's kind of a crude form of delusion versus one that, yeah, I have a general sense of what's happening in the room. I'm not too checked out. Um, or do I have belief systems that are operating that I'm realizing are actually not accurate and checking into that type of delusion is having wrong view versus having a dull mind or a checked out mind. A couple different ways that delusion can come. How many people notice that their mind right and heart right now are dominated by some type of delusion? You've been raising your hand on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that one, that one speaks to me particularly. <laughs> yeah, how does it speak to you particularly? Uh, it speaks to me particularly in terms of um, checking out when I must feel alive. Yeah. And I think um, it's more my body that checks out, but sometimes my mind goes along with that. Right. Great description. Body checking out, mind checking out. How about over here? I saw a hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, confusion. That's a form of delusion. Yeah, and um, and it's interesting because I, it's actually confusion and anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I have a, I have kind of complicated relationship to anger. Um, anger often turns into sadness, mm-hmm. um, or a feeling of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's something I can do. Mm. Sorry, you're in that state. I see the the pain of the confusion and the anger and the sadness bubbling up. And so one of the things that happens is as we open the door, rather than keeping these things at bay, sometimes we open the door and they express themselves. And depending on what's skillful, sometimes letting something that you've held at bay express itself. It's a way of getting to know it, a way of not blocking it. <clears throat> and if you have a sense that you can express it and then find you've relieved some tension. And sometimes you get a sense, if I start to let this in, previous experience has shown I actually get kind of swept up in it. So I want to actually go in and find the right relationship to it and then know how to step back And then you're doing both intimacy and skillful intervention to support deeper intimacy, but then the right intervention so that you find the mindful way of meeting the same collection of emotions and beliefs so that you can grow the capacity to finally meet it and hold it. And that tends to be where there's a much more final resolution, but sometimes you have to build capacity to stay oriented in it. So knowing how to dip in, and then knowing how to relax back out, and then go back in and relax back out. Um, but there is, from, what, from my understanding, there's a relationship between delusion and ignorance, right, in Buddhism? They're kind of the same thing? Yeah. No, they're not. Um, or they're, they're so the, the Pali word moha, M-O-H-A, is delusion. It's a kind of a big umbrella. And moha is all the ways that our minds are not clear. And so that can be sleepiness, dullness, confusion, murkiness. Um, but it also can be active belief systems that are not accurate. 
and that goes that is all under the Pali word moha. There's another word avija, and avija means um, um, having the wrong view, operating under the wrong paradigm. Um, that's called avija. A V I J J A. And so, if you're operating under the wrong paradigm, um, that's also part of the greater category expression of moha, but it's a more specific thing about having the wrong operating system. So, you can have a lot of clarity and still be in delusion because it feels like clarity, but the whole way that you're interpreting what's happening is not accurate. So you can have um, people who are very clear they need to cause harm. It's not foggy, it's not confused to them. It feels like I see things radically clear, I feel very empowered, but the whole operating system is, we call it diluted, but it doesn't have the taste of murkiness or confusion. It actually takes like very clear, empowered mind, but it's operating off the wrong, an unwise paradigm. And so that we call uh, avija. That's the Pali word for it. How many people feel like they're not operating under heavy delusion, heavy avija? They, they're in a, their heart and their mind is sort of, yeah, here now I have perspective. Other folks, what's that like? Can that be a delusion? <laughs> <laughs> it could be. But just um, it's actually a, a feeling of clarity. Yeah, feeling of clarity. Yeah. And peace. Peace, clarity, perspective. Yeah. <clears throat> if you know it, then when it, the opposite happens, or if you start to slide out of it, you're more aware of the gradations of knowing when it's when you're clear, when you're not clear, and then you get to know all the shades in between, and then you can actually watch a wave of clarity come over you and it peaks and then it goes back into something and you slid into restlessness or you slid into sleepiness or you slid into a bafflement or you find yourself being very clear and understanding and then you slide into some type of view that feels clear but it actually isn't accurate. So, I mean, kind of a bad example would be like, having one moment of your day where you're like, yeah, we're all unique individuals and everybody's got their own little micro-understanding of the world, but we can all get along. And yeah, I'm holding a view that actually maps on and it's helpful to kind of respect everybody's differences. And then I go along and the clarity doesn't feel like it's going down, but I start thinking like, you know, everybody's unique, but I think I actually get it more than most people. So you actually wouldn't start noticing a dip in clarity. The clarity would feel the same, but you, the operating system starts to be much more, or, yeah, it feels really clear, we're all good, but I got more problems than most people, and I look around and I see, God, this, everybody's such a beautiful example of being a Buddhist practitioner, and mm-hmm. pretty clear that I'm the one who doesn't get it, I'm the one who doesn't. So you might actually not notice your clarity level going down, it might feel clear, but the operating system has gone from conducive to your well-being to not conducive to your well-being. And that would be the rise of a form of delusion. And then, luckily, Anicca kicks in. But as you get to know it, you can then check it 
And you can say, actually, this type of thinking is not accurate. I know something's come over me. You're more likely to see what kicked it off. Oh, when someone some so when so and so actually accurately described, you know, their nature, the how fear works in them. I'm always lost in fear, and that was the moment I began to doubt myself. Like, oh, I never had that clarity. They have that clarity. Well, that's what that's what began. That's how unarisen self doubt arose. I compared myself to somebody else, and that's was a starting point. So that's again in the fourth foundation when you start looking. How does it arise? How does it fall apart? How can we prevent it? Okay, I think we get the general sense. Yeah, over here. Yeah, one more. But like things that tend to shift the way that my mind feels in ways that I don't really keep track. So, yeah, can you just talk about how that... Using substances, those approved and illicit (laughs) for uh, interventions on the mind. Uh, Again, as you heighten your own self-intimacy, you can find your motivations and... Um, I, one of the things I'm most addicted to, and it comes from being reinforced by my academic family, is that when this mind can articulate well, there's such a, I get all these endorphins kind of going because I is trained so early on that um, intellectual articulation was the height of praise in my academic family. And it's what we're all trying to like get there. So we... Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually streaming. I unconsciously have this like love of it. So when my mind doesn't go there, if I'm not conscious, I was like, I need something to boost me. I want to get back up there. And is that conscious? So I'm more productive in the role of trying to articulate this um, discourse, or is it actually an addictive? I don't want to. I don't want you to see me when I'm baffled. I don't. I don't like that guy. So then what's actually happening around those substances? Some legal substances can be abused, and it's good to know when they're being abused. Some people will find that, you know, studies have shown a glass of wine every day or every other day or something like that is actually conducive for reducing stress if people don't have other mechanisms. So it may not be an addiction. It may actually be a skillful way of taking in uh, alcohol. Some people zero tolerance because of their relationship to it. Some people want to have developed complete sobriety and develop their own strengths so that they become less dependent on substances. Um, I have found that green tea doesn't cause a type of negative crash, but it can give me some clarity when I need clarity. But coffee, it's a last resort at a five-day conference when I'm really trying to learn something and it's just the whole mechanism of the conference is not conducive to well-being because it's just sugary food, a lot of information, sugary food. And like, I've just got to crack, I just got to crack this exhaustion and focus one more time. That's when I reach for the coffee. There are other substances out there that people have learned to use wisely and some people will abuse those substances as well. Why are we using them? What's the intent? Are we wakeful while we're using them? Are we deluding ourselves that we're using them wakefully? Are we actually noticing 
their assistance. Um, some people I know have a problem with uh, a pot addiction, and it's important for them to stop. Some people have had an illegal relationship. I mean, it's not legal. Um, or it is if it's medical marijuana. But I know um, there are some people in my extended family that their psychology just operated better when they smoked pot. So that's it's data. There's opinions and there's data. For some people it doesn't work, for some people it does. But we have this kind of blunt, crude, legal, illegal, and it's not my opinion that that's the best way to go about it. So <clears throat> looking at motivation, looking at actual impact, um, and then seeing is this conducive short-term and long-term for your welfare, or is it not? And a lot of very committed, fiery social activists can burn out on pots of coffee to make sure that they are in their high-octane mode. Um, so it's always a caution when I was working at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship to see how many pots of coffee people were drinking. Like, that's usually not sustainable. So that's enough kind of set up. Now we're going to go into practice. Um, let's just stand up again for just a minute or two to stretch out our bodies. We'll do a half hour of sitting and then a half hour of walking to explore this aspect of the practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.